All right, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. I'm going to be speaking to you today about healing and also about the prevention of disease. This is one of the promises of the Old Testament. It runs right through into the New Testament and is still ours for today. So it's not only a healing of diseases that we get, but the healing of those diseases once we have them. But this really, this passage here in Exodus 15 deals more with prevention than it does with cure. We'll see both today. Exodus 15, verse 24, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Keep in mind the backdrop for this principle of Scripture is they're in a desert, and this is not an easy walk, so don't be too critical of these people. Ancient Israel, they're in a hard place, and there's no water. Well, apparently there was no water. In verse 25 of Exodus 15, it says, And Moses, he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, there was water there they couldn't drink, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Let's look at that verse one more time, Exodus 15, 26. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Title of the message is very simple, right from the scripture, none of these diseases. You may remember the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who was able to survive his time with the other German Jews. He was able to survive the Nazi concentration camps. Afterward, he wrote a very engaging book entitled, or titled, Man's Search for Meaning. Now keep in mind the situation that he was in and comes up with this title, but he wrote in his book something that is very profound. Again, keeping in mind what he just came out of. He wrote these words in Man's Search for Meaning. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life. Speaking of his time in the concentration camps. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life. No aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. What was needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves. And furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life 
and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, hourly and daily. Our answer must not consist in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answers to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. Now, I can point out that he talks about life in very general terms, whereas we don't. We talk about God's purpose and what is God doing in the world. But it's still a very profound observation that he was able to survive while others who gave up hope in life seeing no aim, no purpose, no meaning, they soon died. In the hour in which we live, there are a score of people that no longer see any purpose, any aim, any meaning in this life. And I want to specifically mention that the professing Christian is one who should be seeing continuous opportunity, having continual hope, being rejuvenated by the Spirit daily, or even as Frankl wrote, hourly, not questioning God as much as some of us do from time to time. Job certainly did. But in understanding that God is working something out in the earth, and we, as professing Christians, we are part of that plan. Otherwise, we find ourselves saying things like this. I just wish the rapture would happen today. They say, well, Pastor, what's wrong with that statement? On the surface of it, nothing, because we usually connect it with Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. But in my view and in my opinion, this is often uttered by people who have lost purpose. They don't see the Great Commission. They don't see making disciples. They don't see a world that's lost. They think about themselves. Oh, I wish the rapture would happen today. Oh, I wish Jesus would return. Well, he's going to. On the date set on his calendar, and as I spoke to you last week, until that time, he says, occupy. And we looked at that word occupy and it means to be engaged in business, God's business, the business of the kingdom. This is the highest aim in life. It's the highest sense of purpose. It's the highest goal. It's to be found at work for God and as the scriptures point out, working with him right now. This one thing, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the promises of God, the purpose of God, the aim of God, the goals of God will keep you going no matter what. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche was certainly not a theologian in the sense of orthodox, more of a philosopher. But I have to give him credit with a few of his statements that are rather engaging. He's the one who said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, in Christ, I agree with that. But he also said this, and it is profound. When you have a why, you can overcome any how. Let me give you an illustration of what he was saying. Well, not towards the gospel, but how I'm applying it. If you know that the aim of your life was not simply to get saved, exhibited by water baptism, and then go to church, and then live your life apart from the gospel, well, you were taught wrong. You're saved, obviously, for your individual welfare, but you were saved to be part of an army, the church, whose aim, Matthew 29, is to make disciples. That's the Great Commission, as I pointed that out to you recently as well. It's not simply telling people about Jesus. That's certainly the initiation. That's the first thing. But it's to make disciples. That's the mission. 
That's your mission. It's not just my mission. It's your mission. It's our mission is to make disciples. And then Jesus went on to say in that same chapter, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the mission. And if you don't have that, you're going to find yourself without aim, without purpose, without meaning. And I will say this as well. It is a fundamental reason and cause for why the church, loosely speaking, is in the mess it's in today. Because men, having forgot this book, one of the operative phrases used in church growth seminars and whatever, or you talk to a pastor and you say, well, this is how we do church. The true Christian does church one way, this way. That's it. I mean, why would God write a book with 31,102 verses to say, it's incomplete. Can you go write another book for me, please? The book of Acts. Jesus said to the disciples, don't leave. Don't go anywhere. You know a lot about me. You spent three years with me, day and night. But don't go anywhere until you receive the promise of the Father, power from on high. And when they did, and they remained in Jerusalem, then Jesus was saying, what are you doing in Jerusalem? You're supposed to go out into the whole world. And so in God's own way, he sent persecution. And they fled. And interestingly, it says everywhere they went, they went preaching the gospel. God said, now it's time to leave. What's with you guys? I tell you to not go, and you try to go. And I tell you to go, and then you don't go. And this is us. This is human nature. If you don't understand what the purpose of the gospel is, in the 8th chapter of Romans, the purpose of the gospel was to conform you into the image and likeness of Jesus. See, it's not just about entering heaven. It's honestly just a, really a byproduct. I mean, a great byproduct and a great benefit, but it's the byproduct of Romans 8, 29. Being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. So then, with that, we have his spirit, Romans 8, the same spirit, Romans 8. We go out with a purpose. And not just into full-time ministries. I did many, many years ago. Not everyone is called to full-time ministry, but everyone is called to ministry. Everyone. And by the way, just as we're passing by this point, now you may say to me, but Pastor, I don't have any gifts and talents, and I'm going to tell you now so you don't have to ask me that question or say that to me. You do have at least one. How do I know that? Because this is how Pastor Ray does church. I look it up, and it says, he's given to every man the measure of faith. Matthew chapter 25 says, to one he gave you know, one talent and so on, and ten talents. So you have one. And it's not meant to be invested in this world alone. It's meant to be invested in the promotion of the kingdom. And the promotion of the kingdom is to make disciples. There's your aim. There's your purpose. Unlike those poor souls, when the stress of life, in this case, severe, severe pressures, of being in concentration camps, of the horrible things that went on in Nazi Germany during the 30s and 40s, men like Viktor Frankl found something deeper. In fact, so did Corey Ten Boom. They found something deeper, that there was a purpose, that there was meaning. Well, not that he said it right here in this little blurb I give you from his book, but he said, this is what man's greatest need is, to find purpose, and God gives that to us in his book. A purpose to get up in the morning. A purpose to get a good night's rest. And let me say this, a purpose to be well. You see, and I'm being honest with you, I'm not a good patient. I don't like being sick. I don't like being sick with the least little thing. Very irritable. I treat sickness as I see it as a little slice of death. Takes away that day, that week, whatever. But my purpose to be well is not simply... My purpose to be well is that I may serve the Lord. 
And I'm saying to you that you need to be well so you can serve Christ. Now, the added benefit is that you're well in every other area because you're well. But the main idea is to be well, healthy, in spirit, in mind or soul, and in body so you can serve the Lord. I've said to you, and it's true, it doesn't take any faith to be sick. Sickness comes out of all of us. It doesn't take any faith to be sick. It takes faith to stand up against it and say, in the name of Jesus, like we heard from our sister back here with her heart condition, doctors are saying, you must go this route, and she kept saying no. And I'm certain, sister, that they spoke behind your back. I have this patient, she just doesn't listen, but you found a way. With modern medicine, this is, don't have to be that way. And it's done, and you're sitting here. But well, the beauticians, so I don't believe in Jesus, but you pray for me right now and I believe in your Jesus. And now all of a sudden the cancer, they thought that we're going to find this not there. And why? God said, I will put none of these diseases upon thee that I brought upon the Egyptians. Now, we have a decision to make right now. We either believe that that's what it means or we don't. And I'm saying this to you again. I am probably the worst patient in the world. I just don't like being sick. I can hold my own, but I just don't like being sick. It's just a slice of death. I treat it as an enemy. I really do. Stand against it. Aches and pains in the morning, or whatever else you have. And I have this dialogue in my head. This is not going to conquer me. This is not going to take me. I have a purpose in life. And unless you have that same purpose, you're going to find your how to be very, very difficult when you come up against challenges in life because you don't have a why? Why am I here, Lord? Well, if you ever wondered that, I'm solving it for you today. You're here to serve Christ. Problem solved. Now you know why. Every how that comes up against you will be met and overcome because you have a compelling why you're living, why you're alive, why we need to be well. We need to be well to serve the Lord. Now, the context of this verse, Exodus 15. Realize that Moses is just out of Egypt. Realize that for 40 years, he was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians. And specifically, I'll zero in on the context, trained in their wisdom of medicine. Well, you say, oh, the Egyptians were brilliant with medicine. Really? Have you ever read the Hebrews papyrus? How many of you have ever had pink eye? How many of you men have ever had pink eye? Men. In the Hebrews papyrus, the solution for pink eye is this. Now, it's a little bit gross, so now it's a little bit gross. The advice at the time of Moses in Egypt was to apply the urine of a faithful wife. Now, if it didn't work, I guess that's going to cause questions at home. <laughs> and we go through this. If you had a splinter in your finger, it's just, we're talking about a splinter. What was some of the things found in the Hebrews papyrus, which again is at the time of Moses, that he was trained in these ways? He learned these ways? Remember, he was second to Pharaoh is to apply cow dung or horse stuff. Now, what happens when you apply horse stuff or cow dung to a little splinter? <laughs> you get an infection, but the infection doesn't always stay local. It starts to travel. Yeah. They couldn't figure out why people were dying. You know, and I'm trying to think if it was the 16th century, 17th century, I can't remember specifically, but more people were dying from leprosy than were dying or died in the Black Plague. Now look up the statistics on the Black Plague. You're talking about millions, like 13, 14 million people died from these infected fleas 
riding on the back of rats that came out of China. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we're back there again. But that's how it went. Look it up. Somehow the rats got out of China, and the fleas were riding on the back. But, you know, you figure with little saddles and stuff. And they came and infected so many people in Europe that you know, 13, 14 million died in the Black Plague. But more people at one point in time were dying from leprosy. And the doctors were clueless. They did not know what to do. And millions upon millions upon millions of people were dying. Then one day somebody said, hey, they looked in the Old Testament. They looked in the Bible. Now, I told you in times past, I have a tremendous respect for medical science. I really do. It's helped me. But even in that, my first trust always is in God. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you can shout out the answer. What's the number one killer in America? It's heart disease, organic illnesses. What's the second leading cause of death in America? It's cancer. What's the third leading cause of death in America? Medical mistakes. I don't think I'm speaking against doctors. I'm not. I have a couple of good ones myself. But Hezekiah made a key mistake when he was sick in his feet and he was going to die. And Isaiah was sent to him to tell Hezekiah, the Lord says, get your stuff together, get your life in order, you're going to die. And the mistake that he made is says that he went to the physicians instead of the Lord. Now, please understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, therefore, never go to a doctor. I'm not saying that. I'm simply pointing out a little bit of what I'm going to read to you that is common knowledge. Heart disease, first killer, cancer, second disease, third, is mistakes made by men, men and, men and women, people who are not perfect, but God is perfect. We need to follow his ways. Let me read this a little bit from this article from just a couple of years ago, and here's the headline. The third leading cause of death in the U.S. most doctors don't want you to know about. A recent John Hopkins study claims that more than 250,000 people in the U.S. die every year from medical errors. Other reports claim that the numbers to be as high as 440,000. And just like the Bible, don't come to me and say, oh, I didn't like what you said, because I didn't write this article either. Medical errors are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Advocates are fighting back, pushing for greater legislation for patient safety and so on. Just pointing this out. We who profess Christ should be going to Christ while we work with our doctors and medical practitioners and so on. Men are fallible. They make mistakes. Well, my dad was having open heart surgery many years ago down in Cornell in New York City. And in my family, there was just a ton of teasing that always went on at all times, including funerals. And so he was laying in bed. His surgery was upcoming. And I said, hey, Dad, I just met your surgeon. He was leaning up the side of the building, drinking something out of a paper bag, but <clears throat> I think he'll be all right by tomorrow. How would you like to know that your surgeon hasn't slept in 48 hours? And if you haven't slept in 48 hours, you are equivalent to being legally drunk. That's true. You can't. When residents were required in medicine to do 72-hour shifts, and I watched a show once where these residents were all amped up on coffee, and the guy came in with gunshot wounds, and they were all, yeah, we're gonna get ready to go, and they hadn't slept in three days. I was saying to myself, man, I would not want to be the guy with the bullets in him. Like, this is going to work out. How do you think? Oops. <laughs> you bury your mistake. Again, let me say, so I'm not misunderstood. I'm not saying don't trust a doctor. Never go to a doctor. Don't take medicine. That was some teachings that went on years ago that's not proper, not balanced, not good. However, I am saying go to God first, foremost, and always in prayer. God help me. God direct my steps, and so on. 
point is, the man who puts his trust totally in man is going to be greatly disappointed or maybe dead. We don't want to be either one. And so we have to choose health. We have to make a conscious decision that I'm going to be a healthy individual because God said so. I want to give you some quotes very quickly on just one subject, and that's called mental toughness. Now, I know some of you are tough and gritty, and this should just add to it. But we are in a battle right now that under Christ, it's going to require mental toughness. It's going to require grit, albeit we talk about the Spirit supplying, the Bible talks about the Spirit supplying us with strength and so forth. But still, the will has got to be engaged that no matter what. We will win. Want a biblical basis for that? For we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Here are some opinions about mental toughness, all of them coming from special operators in various services. In my opinion, mental toughness is the ability to remain calm when others are overcome by fear or panic. Being able to do whatever needs to be done to win. Be able to do whatever needs to be done to win. Another, mental toughness is not letting anyone or anything break you. And if you're biblically savvy, you could connect all of these statements to a Bible verse. As a former pararescueman, I believe that mental toughness is the ability to stay focused and overcome anything that might degrade your ability to achieve the mission. For us, the mission is to make disciples. It is the ability to adapt and perform well under the worst conditions possible. Again, no matter what happens, I simply refuse to lose. To me, it's really that simple. I approach anything thought to be difficult with an attitude of, I'll do this or die trying. And again, it means that whenever most people would make excuses why something can be done, I focus on finding a way to get it done. Again, mental toughness is the belief that as long as I'm breathing and my brain is functioning, I have the ability to succeed at any given task. Just keep in mind that all of this is not mentioning Christ, but it still has merit. Otherwise, I wouldn't be reading it to you. During my service in a ranger unit, I learned that mental toughness is a man's ability to defeat the voice in his mind that is telling him to quit. Again, I've seen a lot of mentally tough guys during my time in the teams, and the common trait they possess is that they all believe that adversity brings out the best in them. Oh, what? Adversity brings out the best in them. So let me give you a little example for you as Christians, since you're not going to be a Navy SEAL, I don't think. Remember the old saying, Christians are like tea bags? You don't know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. When they're on the shelf or in, they smell nice. But what about them? What are they all about? Let's boil some water and put them in there. We'll see how strong they really are. Adversity brings out the best in them and that there's always a way to win. In Christ, of course, that's true. The ability to stay focused when ordinary men would buckle under the pressure or be consumed by fear. Again, mental toughness is doing whatever is necessary to accomplish the mission. Again, you simply cannot be a Navy SEAL without being mentally tough. You wouldn't make it through buds, and you certainly wouldn't be able to operate in combat if you weren't. SEALs must have the mental ability to block out physical pain and fear while remaining highly focused on whatever is required to achieve victory. I was never able to shake my fear of heights. <laughs> this comes from a paratrooper. I was never able to shake my fear of heights and never enjoyed jumping out of an airplane at 20,000 feet. Does anybody? <laughs> Yet I did so hundreds of times over my 25-year career. 
I simply decided that my desire to serve in the special forces was stronger than the fear I felt toward jumping. The men who wear the green beret aren't immune from fear. They simply refuse to let it affect them in a negative way. That's what mental toughness means to me. And so we get an idea of people, some of whom, by the way, aren't Christians, but they're not giving credit to Christ. And here we have this verse that I've used so often over the years, and I use it for myself. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And he did. And we will. We must. There's no other strategy. There's no other option. We must. And to stay well is a wise decision. To stay well so we can serve. And then again, I give this to you. But then there's all these other benefits as well. You're serving the Lord and you're healthy. You can then enjoy other things much better. Much, much better. But the main reason to stay healthy is to serve the Lord. To be light in the darkness. So where does the war that we're fighting rage? It's right here. Listen, I want to help you here. Let me just start with something light like negative thoughts. You can't do this. That's it. That's it. I'm at the end of my rope. And all of that. Every single one of us, starting with me, has those thoughts go through their minds. So it's not unique to you. I can't take another step. This is the last straw and all of that. But in Christ we say, no, it's not the last straw. Many, many years ago, I preached a message entitled, What to Do When You're at the End of Your Rope. A woman who was in the church at the time moved away since she was so stressed, she was praying at home. She says, Lord, I'm at the end of my rope. Please help me. Help the pastor to say something today. So I get up there and I say, here's my message. What to do when you feel like you're at the end of your rope? And what I said basically with all the scriptures that went with it is that that rope has a magical way. Well, that's not the right word, but that rope has a way of lengthening. You can see you're at the end, and then all of a sudden when you put your hand there, hey, because God is eternal, and God's strength never ends. God's strength has no beginning. God's strength has no end. And so the scriptures tell us this. Though the outward man perish, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Every day. (laughs) He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. I have a book, I'm not going to go into it now, but it's called The Gift of Injury. It's about back problems. What the author, who's a specialist on back injuries and spinal injuries, is saying is that it's actually a blessing when you're injured because now we can rehabilitate you and show you what you were doing wrong to have the injury when it's not something that's genetic or congenital. But even then, he claims that 80% of people who were told they had to have surgery don't need surgery. Now, he's a professor, and again, these aren't my words, those are his, by the book, Gift of Injury, Dr. Stuart McGill. And I say to myself, if secular sources can come up with these things, why are we not believing what the scriptures teach? Go research the Harvard Medical, the cognitive laboratories, and other places that are coming up with well, the truth that whatever your genetic predisposition is, which is the operative phrase for many years now, it's your genetics, it's your genetics, can't do anything about it. They're surprised to learn at Harvard that now there is something you can do about it. But I'll leave that to you to go read up on it. I've already read up on it. And all it keeps doing for me is pointing me back here, pointing me to the scriptures. If men who are not necessarily professing Christ, or at least don't mention him, can say that they can do these things, how much more can we do if we would believe what the scriptures state and win the battle that is waging right now in the mind? I said to you on Wednesday night, 
And for those of you who've been around a while, how many times have we been through this? This new president we got is the Antichrist. <laughs> Counting up the letters in his name and all that. And I also said to you, right, Lewis? Thankfully, our current president isn't bright enough to be the Antichrist. So that's, that settles that. <laughs> so we don't have to go through this again. He will come one day. But you keep in mind that Christ will defeat Antichrist. He's already defeated Antichrist. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We must win the battle of the mind. And I'll say it briefly because I've covered this a lot lately. If you're going to feed your mind all day long with the media, I don't care what side you listen to, you're defeated already. You're going to become more angry, more bitter, more amped up, which is producing cortisol, adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine. And when those hormones, which were designed for a fight or flight situation, are built up, built up, built up, built up, built up, it becomes toxicity in your system. Huh. But when you read the Bible, the only book on this planet that does not confuse me, I'm using this phrase, you can feel the energy. You can feel the energy. As a matter of fact, one of the Greek words in the Bible is anagale. It's where we get our English word energy. And that's how we are strong and can do exploits if we take the time to believe what God has said. God, when we signed on, told us, listen, it's going to be rough times. When we hit rough times, we say, God, it's rough times. He told us from the beginning there would be rough times. Now, we must win the battle that's in the mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. This is an illustration of men to this day that are in desert areas that wear long robes for the sand. Now, when you run, you've got to tie that up. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be strong. Get ready to stay in this race and win this race. And the mind is the imagination, is the thought processes, and so on. So it takes a lot of diligence. But you got to win it here. <laughs> I'm thinking about medicine, right? We're talking about medicine. You ever, you ever have an MRI? And they put you, basically what's in a, a test tube. And if you're bigger, you're squeezed in there. And I'm in there one time years ago, and I'm rubbing up against the walls as I'm going in. And they forgot to turn on the air conditioner in there, where they put the mask on me, so I looked like something from Alexander Dumas' book, The Man in the Iron Mask. I asked for classical music, they got something else in there. I'm up against, I'm being squeezed, I'm being folded. And then there's the first drip of sweat. How you doing? <laughs> Great. How you doing? Fine. And all of a sudden, my heart starts to go boom. Oh God, I'm having a panic attack. Uh, and they say, you're doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I kept saying, I was counting time, literally counting the seconds. They put me another MRI, that was an open one, which really wasn't a whole lot better. The ceiling is here, and then you can kind of see out the sides, like a sandwich. Do you realize that I said, okay, I already have a method because I've been through this before. I counted the time by counting seconds. I am a drummer. And he says, okay, I'll keep you in there 10 minutes. He kept me in there 19 minutes, and when he came out, he said, well, I had you a little longer. I said, yeah, it was 19 minutes, so I counted. That's how I kept my mind occupied. I had to win the battle of the mind or turn in my man card for running out of the MRI, screaming and yelling like a little girl. That was the only two options I had. Oh, boy. <laughs> I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. 
I gave this verse to you as well Wednesday night, but I want everyone to hear it because it's a challenge, encouraging challenge. And I want you to take this home today and say, wow, Lord, that's an encouraging challenge. Let me read the whole text. Matthew 17, 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth in the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Nothing different from then to now. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither, bring him here to me. And just a parenthetical statement here. This Jesus here doesn't exist in America today. He never says anything that's even remotely provocative. That's okay. We understand your heart. You, you know, we all have unbelief, so don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Right? Read Matthew chapter 23 when he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers. That's a pit of snakes. You pit of snakes. That was a clergy meeting. Jesus was always appropriate. He was frustrated. How many times you got to read this? How many times you got to see this? How many times? How long do I have to be with you? Verse 18, Matthew 17, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, and this is the challenging verse, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. Now listen, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Wow. Look, there's not a book in the library anywhere, other than theosophy and mystical teachings, that can make that kind of a promise to anybody, any athlete, any teacher, whoever they are. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. I had this verse brought to my mind just a few nights ago, about a week ago maybe, and I said to myself, that's both encouraging and challenging. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, to rise up to that, and in order to rise up to that, we must play by the rules. But just think about that for a second. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. This is the way I look at it. <clears throat> People who teach on human potential and uh, how to be a success in life or whatever they teach on. And people actually do have success. That's obvious. I keep saying to myself, if they can do it without Christ, what can I do with Christ? Amen. See, that's the challenge. Because you'd have to deny reality to see that people, you know, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, and then somebody came and did it even quicker, and then quicker. Things can be done in human nature without acknowledging Christ, even though the power ultimately comes from God. He's not acknowledged. But what can be done by a person who says, I am in Christ, and Christ is in me? Well, I want to let you know that I am both encouraged and challenged, but I'm grateful for that. I am grateful for that. You know, let me say something to you before I forget this about stress. The Bible does not say God's will for you is to have a stress-free life, although that's what we picture. We picture a life where every day is just, there's no stress. Research has proven that without stress, you will die prematurely. However, we also have learned, and we've heard this in the prayer meeting as well, 
that too much stress, well, that's too much of this and too little of that. We need just the Goldilocks stress, just right. And we, in Christ, control that. Too much stress, we control by boundaries, saying, no, I don't do that. No, I won't do that. No, I can't do that. Too little stress means you're not on the job. You're not focused, or you're focused on the wrong things. I'll go back to Nietzsche, who I'm not advocating you read him. I'm just saying that sometimes he has some profound statements, as many people do. When you have a why, you can always find the how or know or overcome the how. How do we do this? I have one purpose in life. You have one purpose in life, to glorify God. I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. That's your one purpose. Now, I just minimized your entire life for you. Thank you. <laughs> I've minimized your time schedule. One purpose. Glorify God. Let's go to it. Here's a little quotation. As long as stress exists, doctors will have plenty of patience. A mind upset makes the body sick. With every passing year, researchers find more and more ways that the mind the shuke, produces sickness in the body. The Greek is soma. Hence the term psychosomatic. So someone says to you, no, it's all in your head. It's really not all in your head. How the mind and brain, we say, affects the body is very profound. Very, very profound. Contrary to popular opinion, this author said, psychosomatic diseases are not, quote, all in your head. Tension in the mind often triggers or worsens asthma, infections, heart attacks, diabetes, arthritis, and a host of other conditions. Obviously, these physical ailments are not merely in your head. They're real ailments. And this is, again, you can go do your own research. I've done mine. Researchers are actually helping us. Archaeology has been helping us for a long time. Now others are coming along, scientists, people in the medical profession are saying this without giving credit to the author of this book who said it from the beginning. So let me talk to you briefly about what I believe is one of the most important aspects of staying healthy. And that is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 16, 26 says, Six days ye shall gather the manna it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so we'll just stop there because you already got the picture. That's the fourth commandment. It's interesting to me to hear preachers talk about the Ten Commandments, how important they are, then ask them about the Sabbath and say, well, that's, not, that's legalism. Then say it. Say, I don't believe in Ten Commandments. I believe in nine. But if you believe in ten, then this one here is substantial. I'll tell you why. Here's a tub. Let's make it an old-fashioned tub where you had to put a rubber plug in it. It doesn't matter what plug you put in. It just holds the water. So you, you fill up the tub. It's got the water in it. And your kid comes along and you go, you go in and take a nice hot bath, and it's empty, like my brother. He would wait till I filled up the tub, and then go in the bathroom, lock the door, and I hear the splashing, and you know, yelling at him through the door, banging on the door. That was my tub. It was similar. So you pull out the plug, whoop, and ever since, and probably since the reformers, ever since we've diminished the fourth commandment, everything else has fallen apart. Sunday is just now is an optional day. I guess yeah, it's raining now, so I'll go to church. And when we don't, church meetings, and when we don't, we're not being refreshed in the word. We're not being reminded of the Lord. We're not being reminded of his commandments and so on and so on and so on. And I will submit to you, and I think I'm going to write an essay on this. I will submit to you that this commandment is actually one of the chief commandments. Because without that, the other nine just go right down the drain. 
Why? Because no one's being reminded. No one's being exhorted. And when you come together, the purpose of the body of Christ is to be a body and to work together. I just happened to meet a, a, well, a younger woman yesterday who looked like she was taking a picture of me as I was walking to my car. Well, she wasn't. She was somehow leaning under the sun, trying to get some sun. She had the camera. I just got talking to her. She did have a church that she attended, and we got talking about stress and all these things, and she was just taking notes. She had a notepad. She was taking them all down. See, you can talk to people about Christ anywhere. I was still in my gym clothes. You know, I didn't have to say, excuse me, I'll be right back. I have to go for a certain time because I'm talking, I'm, I'm sharing with you. And then she went on to, you know, to say, as we heard in the prayer, what a great need it is to be relieved from this excessive stress. But you're not going to be relieved from it until you start paying attention to the word of God and actually doing what it says. I believe the fourth commandment is critical to our health, spirit, mind, body. The Westminster Confession, the catechism used for the Puritans and, and others, Presbyterians, even Baptists. The first question is this, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's our purpose? As Victor Frankl put forth, what, what, what are we doing? And the answer it taught to little kids and they grew into be adults and then many of them preachers as well. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now look at that word enjoy, to enjoy God. I wanna tell you that I actually enjoy God, I really do. I truly do. There's a man sitting right back there at the wall. You can see me. I can't see you too well, but you can see me. And he complains about the birds singing at 4.30. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm talking to you. You complain about the birds singing. They wake him up, he says. And I'm saying, man, I, I love hearing them birds. They sing better than anybody I've ever heard. Beep, 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 beep. 4.30 may be a little early, but what can you do? Beep, 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 beep. And they're just singing and singing and singing, and my heart just starts to rejoice in the creation of God, in God's goodness. They say if you spend, uh, it's either seven or 10 days in the woods camping, it will reset the circadian rhythm in your life, get things back in balance. And why is that? Because camping is the way to get the Kirka DAs, the cycle of life, to reset itself. No, it's because you're in God's nature. In any case, there's a rhythmical pulse, just like we have a natural pulse, just drummers call tempo pulse, a pulse. You're on the pulse, you're off the pulse. You have a pulse. Life has a pulse, it has a rhythm. And in that rhythm, God said, one day you stop and you remember me and you get together. And it's called the Sabbath. It has never been denied in Christian history until recently that the Christian Sabbath became Sunday, but still a moral obligation. Let me illustrate. You already know you can't take God's name in vain. You know you can't have false gods before him. You know that you cannot um, you know, bow down to statues and so, so forth. You know that you cannot steal, bear false witness, commit adultery. No serious professing Christian denies this. But on the fourth commandment, it's like, well, you know, we're not legalists. How do you logically reason your way through 10 commandments and distance one and say, it's the 10 commandments? Not 10 to you, it's nine to you. It's 10. Because there's a rhythm and there's a pulse in life. And that pulse, set for us in creation by God himself, who rested on Saturday, which was the original Sabbath, or the uh, creation Sabbath, or the, the Decalogue, the moral law. And Jesus came with a New Testament and said, now this is going to be your Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of refreshing, a day of hearing the word of God, a day of prayer. Reset the clock so that your life glorifies God. And you know what? We would have to literally put guards at the door to keep people out if everybody really enjoyed God. I remember being in the mass as a kid. We had this priest who was not like the rest. 
He just had a way at the pulpit. It was great. And you know, you tell a joke or two and had you laughing. And I remember I was only like third grade, fourth grade. And I remember him saying something I never forgot. He was talking about church attendance and going to mass. He said, you know, if we were giving out diamonds here, just think of the crowds. And I never forgot that. But you know what the truth is? We are giving out diamonds. We are giving out diamonds. Not everybody takes one. We are giving out diamonds. We will be healthier. We will be stronger. Might I add, we'll be smarter. Smarter, yeah, smarter. I don't want to make a plug for the King James Bible because that's another can of worms, but, oh, I can't understand this. Got a dictionary? Look it up. Oh, I ain't got the time for that. Really? What do you got time for? Perfecting your golf swing? Let me give you some news. You'll never be Jack Nicholas. Read the word. Read the word. Unless you want to be Jack Nicholas or beat him. Okay, fine. But this day is set aside. Rest the mind in Christ. Rest the body in Christ. Obviously, works of mercy and so forth are different. Emergency services, 911 and surgeries, whatever. But for the general population, it's a day that God says, keep it. Even when we read through the Old Testament, one of the complaints God makes against Israel is that not just the Saturday Sabbath, but the Sabbath of the land, the depletion of the soil. As long as he says as you're in captivity, the land's going to have rest. On my block, which happens to be Market Street, in case you don't know, there used to be a time when, on, especially on a Sunday morning, there'd be no cars on the road. A long time ago, I mean, no cars. Now, I mean, I'm reading my Bible, and music around the same decibel level of a jet plane about to take off. I'm trying to pray, oh God. Then we got the hip hop. And it drives me nuts. It truly does. I like Bach. I like classical guitar. I listen to other stuff too. But what has happened? Society is breaking down and getting sick, physically, mentally, otherwise. Let me throw this one in too. Just think about this. The Surgeon General has determined that smoking is bad for your health. But smoke pot. Tell me how this is logical. Tell me what the Surgeon General is going to say now. I've read already studies coming out from respiratory people and stuff like that. How is this the wisdom of this? The wisdom of the world. They want to take cigarettes away from people so you can't even see them behind the counter. But open up centers that are going to have revenue in the billions and billions of dollars so that you could have up to 10 pounds of marijuana in your house. That's a lot of pounds. Let's hope there's not a fire. The whole block will be high. <laughs> hey, there's a fire down the street. Yeah, man, this is a cool. Wow. Whoo, look at them flames. <laughs> this is the wisdom of the world. I'm just waiting to see what their response is. I'm waiting to see what their answer is. Don't smoke those cigarettes. Want a joint? <laughs> the bongs. This will be Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's the wisdom of the world. It's so stinking stupid that you have to be stupid to believe it. Yeah, I, right, I just put it in my tongue. It's not going in my blood system, just rotting my teeth. Okay. We are designed to glorify God. It's, it's difficult to glorify God, and I don't want to make this too, too heavy. It's difficult to glorify God when you're not feeling well, when you're sick. You know, you're not feeling your best. You're a little irritable. Here, listen to this. My favorite go-to team when I need to laugh, which is frequently, is Laurel and Hardy. For those of you old enough to remember them, just the slapstick, the falling down, the walking in the doors. They both think they're smart. He's pushing him. And I just love these guys. I always have. They're my absolute favorite. 
So I said, I need a little break here, and I was doing some study, and I took, I, you know, I, I won't watch long videos. Uh, so it was like a five minute of the best clips. And here's the thing, I'll show you where we've come in America. So they're fighting. He's got a big tray of sandwiches, and Stanley knocks them all over the place, and he's pushing him, pushing him. And the, one of the wives, listen, one of the wives comes forward. Now, this is the 30s. One of the wives comes forward and talks to Ali and to Stan and says, boys, this is the Sabbath. You should be, you know, good or nice. Sabbath in Hollywood. See, back then, we was losing ground, but it was still imposing. Now, where are we now? You see, this day is given to you to rest, to relax, to be with family, to do constructive things, and so on. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath. Well, that would be Saturday. <clears throat> and the first day of the week ever since the New Testament to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. That's also from the Westminster Catechism. As you know, here in the northeast part of the United States, the Puritans had great influence. Right? You know that. And I'll finish with this, I'll conclude with this today, because this has always intrigued me. I've read it to you throughout the years. And as we pray for a third great awakening, in my essay, when I get to write it, when I write it, I'm going to include this. Somehow we need to do something about this situation. Can't mandate people go to church, obviously, but it's got to be restored. Listen to the words of Alexis de Tocqueville. Writing about his trip to America, it's the early part of the 1800s, 19th century, and he says this. It is still true, however, that nothing strikes a foreigner on his arrival in America more forcibly than the regard paid to the Sabbath. Now, that's 1840-something, and I'm quoting from 1930-something. They're still saying, boys, it's the Sabbath. And ever since that broke down, people are getting sick mentally. They're getting sick physically. Obviously, it's not the only cause, but it is, in my opinion, a leading cause. There's no relief from stress, of the bad stress. Let me read it again. I'll finish. It is still true, however, that nothing strikes a foreigner on his arrival in America more forcibly than the regard paid to the Sabbath by Americans. Now, I put that, that part in. There is one in particular of a large American city in which all social movements begin to be suspended even on Saturday evening. You traverse its streets at the hour at which you expect men in the middle of life to be engaged in business and young people in pleasure, and you meet with solitude and silence. Not only have all ceased to work, but they appear to have ceased to exist. Neither the movements of industry are heard, nor the accents of joy, nor even the confused murmur which arises from the midst of a great city. Chains are hung across the streets in the neighborhood of the churches. The half-closed shutters of the houses scarcely admit a ray of sun in the dwelling of the citizens. Now and then, you perceive a solitary individual who glides silently along the deserted streets and lanes. Next day at early dawn, the rolling of carriages, the noise of hammers, the cries of the population begin to make themselves heard again. The city is awake. That was the America we once had. My generation was watching the sun set on what is now known as the blue laws. And now we have chaos. Even professing Christians look at the Lord's Day as just another option when it's part of the moral law. None of these diseases. Do you believe that? I do. I do. And I'm very well experienced in having disease. I treat it like an enemy, and so should you. And I treat it like an enemy to the ministry of Jesus Christ, and so should you. 
Imagine the day that we take God at his word in everything, playing by the rules, paying attention to the scriptures, doing what they say, and begin to experience reversal of diseases, which are already happening in the world. They're reversing diseases through science. And God already put the science in the Bible for you and for me. So we pray this morning, because again, I know most of your stories that are here and what things you're dealing with. Let's stand on God's word and say, God, you said none of these diseases. Then we look at Jesus, the healing ministry, and on and on. And we have hope. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Let's bow our heads. I want to pray first for our nation before I pray for you. So, Father God, in Jesus' name, we pray for America to do what only you can do. Move on the people and give us a third great awakening, one that causes us to be disciples and to do what you have said to do. Help us, God. Now, Lord, Father God, there are so many people here today that are dealing with different things. As we heard one testimony today, uh, illnesses come up. It's a mystery to the doctors. They can't find anything wrong. But the psychosomatic illnesses, well, what's in the psyche is definitely causing problems in the body. Father, you sent Jesus to be many things, Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, but also a healer, a healer of diseases, a healer of sicknesses, a healer of the mind and bringing it peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives it. Give I unto you. The world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We bless you today, Father, and we praise you. I'm going to ask you right now, these next couple of minutes, and as I've said throughout the years, the deeper you are in the valley, I want you to praise more fervently than the rest. I want you to, whatever you're facing, and I know many of you are facing some real challenges, whatever you're facing, look it straight in the face and say, I will defeat you. I will defeat you. It can be depression. It can be anxiety. It can be cancer. It can be anything. And say, in Jesus' name, I will have the victory. I will defeat you. Amen. Let's give God some praise this morning and thanksgiving for his exceeding great precious promises. We bless you, O God. We praise you, O God. We give you praise. We give you thanks. Oh, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Oh, Father, we bless your name today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, Father, the end of another service, not the end of the Lord's Day, but the end of another time together. Help us, God, during the week to be compliant to the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all the heart all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Continually remind us of these principles, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen this morning? Amen. amen.